the Anesthesia Podcast. Hello and welcome to this Anesthesia Journal live broadcast. My name is Craig Lyons, I'm an anesthetist in Goy, Ireland and the Journal's Fellow. Uh, my name is Laura Duggan, uh, coming to you live from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, where I'm an Associate Professor here at the University of Ottawa in the Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine, and also an editor of the uh, journal Anesthesia. So during the COVID pandemic, there has been much debate about what constitutes an aerosol generating procedure. And such procedures are regarded as carrying higher risk of transmission of coronavirus via the airborne route. But a recent publication in Anesthesia entitled A Quantitative Evaluation of Aerosol Generation During Superglottic Airway Insertion and Removal examines this issue. And so we're joined tonight by two of its authors to discuss it. And Dr. Andrew Shrimpton is a National Institute for Health Research Doctoral Fellow at the University of Bristol. And Dr. Jules Brown is a consultant in anesthesia and intensive care medicine at North Bristol NHS Trust. So thanks both for being with us. Jules, I might start with yourself first. Could you explain to our viewers why you felt this was an important area to study and why you chose this time to look at supraglottic airway use? Yes, uh, thank you for asking us to talk on this. Um, I think the first thing to point out is that uh, I don't have a significant research background. And prior to 2019, I had very, very limited knowledge of aerosols or anything to do with aerosol science. But very early on in the in sort of early 2020, um, there were two things really that were quite striking. And the first thing is that there was a discrepancy between what we were told was risky and what to to a, a jobbing clinician seemed obvious to be not particularly risky. And the other thing is that there was quite a discrepancy between uh, the advice given to staff working with known COVID patients on wards and the advice given to anaesthetists who were anaesthetizing routine patients. And on the one hand, they were being advised that a simple face mask was adequate protection, whereas giving an anaesthetic was said to require a, a respirator. So, um, so this led to, I guess I approached Jonathan Reed, who's a, uh, an aerosol chemist at the University of Bristol. And I was also advised to contact some researchers. So I contacted Tony Pickering and uh, Tim Cook. And then, um, then we roped in Andy Shrimpton, who was awarded an NIHR uh, PhD fellowship so that he could do all the work and we could claim all the credit. And we've obviously had support from our hospital, from the University of Bristol, and from the Aerator-funded NIHR sort of uh, umbrella study, if you like. Um, but that's really where it came from. It was really a, a discrepancy, I guess, that led to the work. That's great. So can I ask Annie then, can you give us an overview of what you did in this study and what did you find? Uh, absolutely. Yes, it's been great to be part of this work. And um, as Jill said, we started looking off at uh, intubation, extubation, and we published that paper in anesthesia at the back end of last year. And then we've taken the techniques that we've learned and developed from that forward into, into subsequent studies. And this one uh, has been looking at superglottic airways, so the insertion and removal of these devices. And kind of going back to the whole AGP status, there is very little evidence surrounding the and which, which procedures should be classified as an AGP. And most of the evidence that's out there is epidemiological. And it comes from SARS back in 2003, 
where when people have done kind of airway manipulation, some people then have got infected afterwards and they've put a, an association between these two events. For superglottics, they're not used in emergency airways in an acutely dyspneic patient. And so there's, there's no epidemiological data out there at all. But in line with that, there's no aerosol measurement studies about it either. But there's no aerosol studies about intubation or extubation prior to our work or on a lot of the other AGPs. And because superglottic airways are used in over half of all UK anaesthetics, and there's an assumption by a huge number of hospital trusts that the use of this device is an aerosol generating procedure, it's having a massive effect on healthcare services and, and health efficiency. And that in itself then has a knock-on effect to patient care. If patients are waiting on a waiting list and they are you know, having increased mortality and morbidity because they can't be seen in time, and that's, that's a huge thing that we need to work out what the relative risk of this is. And so our, our study was aiming to just ask the question, does aerosol, is aerosol generated from the insertion and removal of a supercrotic airway device? And as much as it also affects um, you know, care in an operating theatre for predominantly elective work, they also use extensively in the pre-hospital environment and in cardiac arrest situations as well. So answering this, this question is absolutely crucial to kind of patient, patient welfare and patient care, really. And so that's why we've, we've looked at this topic in, in particular. Going back to how we've done it, we've again used our um, techniques we've developed from the intubation extubation study. And so we've measured with very sensitive particle sensing um, equipment that in collaboration with the Bristol Aerosol Research Centre. Um, the amount of aerosol that's generated during the insertion removal of 12, um, 12 devices. And as the headline that we found is that the actual insertion and removal of these devices is, is not intrinsically aerosol generating. And because of this, the procedure itself doesn't generate aerosol. And so we think that it should not be listed as an aerosol generating procedure. And we think this should have a big impact, hopefully, on the healthcare services and patient care going forwards. Um, I'd like to ask both of you a question about uh, the, the measurements themselves. So, so the, the, um, this trial was performed in an ultra-clean environment at 500 air changes per hour. Now, the normal OR environment, at least here, and it sounds like there as well, is about 25 changes per hour. Hallways in the OR are about five changes per hour. And in the PACU environment, it's plus or minus that, just to get context. So the, the measurements themselves were performed at 25 air changes per hour. And please correct me if I misunderstood that, with a kind of reset of the room at 500 changes per hour. Um, so do you think that the 500 air changes per hour as a reset reflects what could possibly be accumulation of aerosols that would happen in a normal environment at 25 changes per hour. Does that make sense? Like, it, yeah. like you know, should we be measuring it not as with resetting, but actually as a, a possible accumulation of these aerosols throughout the procedure of intubation and extubation that can occur in a normal OR environment? Um, I think that's a really interesting question to ask. And um, certainly with our initial intubation and extubation paper, we had it with the, this, this, this system on. 
but we subsequently developed our techniques and we've stepped down to the standby mode, which, as you rightly say, becomes 25 air changes per hour, which is in line with most um, standard operating theatres. In terms of the accumulation, well, I think it's going back to why we're doing this. In terms of why we haven't to use these ultra-clean operating theatres, is that the background aerosol counts in any other environment are just so high that you just can't see um, just normal respiratory activity like breathing and speaking. But in these ultra-clean operating theatres, you can resolve this very, very clearly. And actually, when the aerosol scientists came into the theatres, they were astounded by how clean that they were. And so by stepping down the number of air changes, what we've managed to get is the best of both. So we've got a, a very clean background where we can see and resolve aerosol generated from, from patients with breathing and coughing and speaking. But we've got rid of the dilutional effects. And so we, we are very confident that our measurements that we're recording are not a dilutional effect. I think Jules, you got any comments? Yeah, so I think the, the other thing about accumulation is that it takes time. And we were measuring second by second. And so we could identify when aerosol was being generated by breathing or coughing, and we could, we could map it over the several seconds after a cough. And so several minutes down the line, the aerosol count generated by a cough was back down to a very low background level. And accumulation isn't really a problem if you're looking at those initial few seconds surrounding the procedure, or even a minute or two surrounding a procedure. And accumulation only really becomes a problem if you were looking over 15, 20 minutes, an hour, that sort of thing. Right. So the um, normal uh, duration of a, an operation with a superglottic device, an hour or so. Well, so we, we think that the, the aerosol would rapidly rise if you when you turn off, and we've, we've measured this, it very rapidly rises, and that's due to whatever else is going on in the theatre. And most of the aerosol that we're measuring is not uh, respiratory aerosol, it's artifacts from uh, particles coming from um, things in the environment. So uh, staff will generate a bit of respiratory aerosol, but the bulk of it is, is artifact. And to give you an example, when you do diathermy, the smoke from the diathermy is an enormous source of, of aerosol. And when you take gauze and you apply it to a wound, a massive amount of aerosol that you can't see that's completely harmless comes out of that gauze. And so in an operating theatre that's working normally, the background count is extremely high and you can only resolve the events that we look at by having the ultra clean air uh, for the period just before you take the measurement. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Jules. Can I just add to that as well, that um, if you don't get aerosol generated from supercross airway device use, you're not going to get accumulation from it either. So that's another kind of thing that, that I'd say that you're not going to get an accumulation of aerosol from using these devices. So, so one of the things that caught my eye in the study was, was your conclusion that the uneventful insertion and removal of a superglottic airway generates no more aerosol than tidal breathing in the same patient and then less than for a volitional cough. But the anaesthetist doesn't know whether the insertion or the removal is going to be uneventful until it's uneventful. Uh, so, you know, given that this is a retrospective diagnosis, how can you then apply that data prospectively to your future patients? Because some of the insertions and some of the removals will be eventful. 
do you want to start on that, Andy? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So it's a great question. And um, what I want to say here, though, is that our data gives us no reason to think that a more difficult or a complicated insertion or removal will generate high levels of respiratory bioaerosol. So what we did find, we found that there was a spike in aerosol during airway management with a device that was slightly more complicated. It didn't sit properly, there was a leak, it was removed, and a new one was inserted. But that increase in aerosol concentration wasn't due, wasn't kind of patient-generated respiratory aerosol. So we can't say it generates no aerosol, but we found a spike that happened with a complicated one. However, our subsequent analysis of that event is that that was from particulate matter, as Chills have said, and from other events that happen at the same time. So again, pillows, moving pillows, moving people's heads, tube ties make a huge plume of aerosol that you can measure. And by accurately timestamping what happened um, and kind of correlating that on a second by second time frame, we could identify, along with looking at the size distribution of those particles, that this was not a respiratory aerosol from the patient. It was due to other factors. And that's where the, the complication kind of came from. So it's not that you know, you're going to have a high risk of bioaerosol with a more difficult airway. Jules? Yeah, so the, the other thing is that I think I've seen one or two comments on Twitter suggesting that maybe coughing when the superglossic comes out would be a complication and would be a high risk. And those people have been advocating, saying, well, it's too late to don PPE if the patient coughs, if you haven't already donned it. So they're advocating wearing PPE from the start. And what I would say is I would go even further than that. And I would say that you need to decide whether to wear a respirator when you see the patient preoperatively on the ward, because it's the patient, not the procedure, that's the risk. So when you go and see the patient pre-op, you need to decide, does this patient pose a risk to me now preoperatively? When I do their Malampati score, am I being exposed to COVID? And if the answer to that question is, yes, I'm being exposed just by them breathing on me, then you need to wear a respirator throughout. But if when you go and see that patient on the ward and you open their mouth and they breathe at you, you don't have concerns about COVID, then you don't need to be concerned when you put in a superglottic airway. I'm just a little bit confused about that. Are you saying that there you, you have predictors of your airway management that you're using to guide your your PPE or you know, so this this thing about looking at patients on the ward and their risk. So the basic question I would have is, well, I can't really predict if my patient's going to cough or not, really. No, but but what you need to do is you need to decide whether that patient has really got a COVID risk. And if they really have a significant risk of COVID, then even when you go and speak to them, even when you get close to them in a ward setting, you should be wearing a respirator. So if you've got a patient on the ward who's got COVID, we would advocate wearing a respirator because they might cough there and then on the ward and they're definitely going to breathe at you. And so that patient with COVID, you should wear a respirator on the ward and in theatre. But if conversely, you go and see a patient on the ward and you think they're not sufficiently high risk to warrant a respirator on the ward, then there's no reason to wear one in theatre. Hmm. These patients are ultimately, if you feel they're at risk, they're going to be you know, swabbed with a PCR test, most likely. So are you essentially saying that you wouldn't apply these concerns to patients who have a negative PCR test? Is that how you're practically dividing, dividing things? 
So what we have in the UK, in England generally, or certainly in my hospital, a sort of traffic light system. And, and the green patients are screened. They have two weeks. They have negative swabs. Those are not a risk. And the red patients have COVID and they are very much a risk. And we'd advocate a respirator. But the orange patients are the ones where there's nothing to suggest they do have COVID. And if we see them on the ward, we don't take precautions. And if we see them on the ward and don't take precautions, we would advocate not taking precautions in theatre where the risk is no higher than on the ward. And other than, you know, but, but what is the problem in, in taking the precautions, say, with respect to PPE, other than resource conservation? What, what, is, what is the aim in saying wear a standard face mask versus an FFP2 mask, for example, other than resource conservation? Um, is, is there any other advantage? So, yeah, one of, I'll jump in here. So one of the massive things here is fallow time. So that's a time kind of after a procedure has been done. So insertion or removal of a device where people can't enter and operate in theatre. And if the procedure is not aerosol generating, essentially that reflects dead time. It reflects time that, you know, the next patient can't be coming in, the staff can't come in and clean the theatres. It just slows the whole theatre environment down. And there are other risks though with that as well. So it means that it's less easy for someone to come in and give emergency support if someone's struggling with an airway because thinking, oh dear, I can't win there because I need to put my PPE on because it's a high risk because it's an AGP. But in reality, if it isn't an aerosol generating procedure, then the patient desaturating or having an airway risk is far, far greater than, than, than kind of this risk of this aerosol that, that isn't there. Hmm. And what then about broader airway management? Because, you know, my superglottic airway might not work. I'll have to take it out, put it back in again. I might have to face mask, ventilate the patient. I might have to insert a tracheal tube. And this kind of all factors into the same thing because those options might not be plan A, but they are essentially part of all airway management plans. And I'm not going to run off and put PPE on in between step A and step B because I'm running into difficulty. So how do you kind of encompass that in to your uh, kind of broader opinions, we obviously have to have an insight into all aspects of airway management and their individual risks um, to the procedure list, because all of them could be in play and not all of it is anticipated. So some of this is, is dealt with by the fact that we've been doing routine anesthesia when we've been doing these measurements. And so we've been doing intubation studies where we've done laryngoscopy. We know that laryngoscopy isn't a problem. We've, in the course of those intubation studies, we've also had to face mask ventilate patients. And we also haven't seen aerosol generating in that setting. And obviously Andy will tell you about further work we've got lined up. Yeah, absolutely. It comes back to Jules's point, though, that essentially, if you think that your patient is risky for getting COVID, then that's the point you should wear um, kind of airborne PPE. And if you don't think that, then if you if you were to say, my plan A is a superglossy airway device, and then you get into trouble, converting them to a tracheal tube will not convey any higher risk because again, it's not going to generate an aerosol, and actually, you know, you're going to deepen the patient, paralyze them but it's not going to generate, generate an aerosol. So there's been no need to say, oh, we need to put some PPE on now, because again, it doesn't generate aerosol. Aerosol is generated when there is turbulent flow going across a, a, a surface to generate it. And again, when you've got a patient who's anaesthetized, this, it, it, the mechanism just isn't there to generate it. Whereas a patient coughing does, that does generate aerosol, but that is, that is completely separate to the procedure itself. 
And, and so then in practical terms for, for viewers watching this, they, they might ask, you know, can I bring my patient with a supraglottic airway inside you to my post anesthetic care unit uh, tomorrow? And, you know, if I'm convinced by your argument, uh, what will I say then to convince a colleague tomorrow who says, Craig, this is a study of 12 patients and I don't accept that you can make practice changing recommendations on such an important issue based on a study of this size. And can I add something to that? Um, so just to echo, 12 patients of which only one had a problem with supraglottic device insertion. It's one type of supraglottic device with cough counts not on any patient, but from you, Jules, um, in, in the paper itself, when you look at the nuts and bolts, you know, this this is this is has huge ramifications, which we've just dealt with with the last question. Like, what should we be doing? And not just in the UK, but internationally, what should we be doing with these patients? Do you think that this this study of twelve patients, of which one only had a problem with the supraglottic device insertion, is powered enough to change practice internationally? Andy, do you want to? Stop. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's a great question. And I guess it comes back to the fact that there are, there are two parts to the de definition of an AGP. One is there needs to be a kind of epidemiological evidence that there's an increased risk from using these devices, and that's just not present. And then the second is that there needs to be an increased risk of generating aerosol from that. And again, we've shown that that isn't the case. In terms of the numbers that we've, that, that we've published with, um, comparing against the patient's own breathing, is a really, really powerful technique of doing, of, of you getting kind of meaningful comparisons from small numbers. And because this is having such a huge impact on healthcare services, we, we wanted to get this data out. But actually, even with small numbers, we've got very statistically significant differences between these groups. And you can see it on, on you know, visually as well. It's, these differences are so big that um, we, you know, we have absolute confidence that a bigger study would reflect exactly what we found. But that is part of what we're looking to do in the future, looking at other devices, multi-center and repeating it. But certainly we want to get this data out there as soon as possible. Can I ask you something? Um, let's look at the nuts and bolts of the measurement of aerosol generation, because that's really the meat of the matter, isn't it? I, I loved what you said about the, you know, the plumes from pottery or from even, even fluffing a pillow. How can we, moving forward, actually measure respiratory secretions separate from all the rest of the noise of non-biologic droplet secrete, you know, droplet generation or aerosol generation, I should say, versus actual respiratory droplets? Um, because I think this is this is one of the hard things about aerosol studies, and why I respect your group so much is actually to 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 try and and quantify aerosol generation when it is so difficult to study. How can we separate biologic from non-biologic uh, aerosols? I, I think the first thing to say is that when you detect aerosol you have to try and determine whether or not it's biological or not. But in an ultra clean theatre, when you don't detect aerosol, which is the case for superglottic insertion, then the fact that you don't detect it doesn't matter what it would or wouldn't be. We just haven't detected it. So we don't feel that we need to determine what might be in there because we haven't detected it. So it's only when 
we've done studies where we have detected aerosol, such as using doing endoscopy, that you then have to decide, well, is this a risk? Is this respiratory aerosol? Does it contain any virus? But in the absence of aerosol, you don't really need to determine that. I'll jump in there as well slightly. So the problem, the other big problem we've got at the moment is that there is actually no technology anywhere in the world that is able to um, sample aerosol and detect the virus from it in any meaningful way. And it's been baffling scientists. Again, people are trying to study this. And the reason why there isn't an answer is because it's so difficult to do. And so because of this, it's going to be, uh, you know, multiple studies that layer upon layer to kind of get this data together. Um, but there's, there's no technology out there at present that can measure the amount of virus that's being expelled by somebody um, and look at the, that infective risk. It just isn't it just isn't out there at present. So so to um, uh, so. Uh... Something to think about moving moving forward is is to develop this that type of technology. I would suppose. Yeah, I mean that that would be ideal. I mean it's the, it's the, the holy grail, as it were. But it's yeah, it's just not there at present. Even, even the devices that are in a, in a lab that are purpose built struggle to do that. To try and do that in a in a, in a clinical environment is just it's just not there yet. Very good point. Craig. So moving forward, then, guys, um, any more? plans on the horizon for future studies and what do you have in store for us in terms of kind of investigating how best we can protect ourselves from COVID? Um, absolutely. I mean, we've, I mean, I think you've alluded to it already. So, you know, whenever you're doing a, an airway intervention, there's plan A, B, C, D, and we're looking at all those facets of airway management. Um, we are working in collaboration with um, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Scott's uh, group in Melbourne, who published an intubation study in your paper, and we're looking at face mask ventilation with them. Other areas that we're looking at are awake fiber optic intubation. We want to try and answer the, the question on suction as well, because again, that's quite an it's a really important kind of component of area management, and to determine whether or not it is or isn't risky for aerosol, aerosol generation is really important. Um, and then the big study that we're really excited about doing that's going to be logistically very challenging to undertake is that we're looking to try and measure the amount of aerosol generated during CPR. Because at present, there are two very polar um, opinions. Um, we've got the Resource Council saying it is an AGP and the nerve type group saying it isn't. And there's a real kind of deadlock between this. It's having a huge effect on, again, on mortality and morbidity. And so we've managed to, with the spot of our local ambulance service, who've got a track record of their excellent kind of high quality research and, and resuscitation. We've got ethical approval already in place for this. And we've also developed, well, Jules has kind of, uh, kind of Heath Robinson, though, kind of really kind of created a new technique to be able to measure aerosol outside of an all-cream theatre. Really hope we can try and identify and answer this question. Good stuff. So thanks again to both of you for joining us to discuss your study. It's got us questioning many of uh, our assumptions, I think. And to Laura uh, for co-chairing the session, thanks to you and to our social media editor, Mike Charlesworth, for bringing it all together. And another reminder that you can access the study free online right now. Uh, that concludes the webinar. We hope you found it useful uh, and we'll see you soon for another one. Until then, keep an eye on our Twitter feed and journal website uh, for all that anesthesia has to offer. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you. Hey, everyone. The Anesthesia Podcast.